Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got someone very interesting for you today. I've got with us Robin Mitchell, who's a historian and associate professor at California State University, Channel Islands. She's also a published author, and her most recent book is Venus Noir, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. And we're going to be talking about this book today. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to talking about this book. It is, I've, I've read it. It's so powerful and horrific and amazing in one. Is that even possible? Yes, it's absolutely possible. And thank you for, for getting all of that in there. Um, it was a very hard book to write. It, 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 it took you a while, didn't it? Uh, 20 years. <laughs> um, Sarah Bartman was the, uh, one of the women in the book, Sarah Bartman was the object of my master's thesis. So I started working on her a long time ago. Okay, so what actually inspired you to write this book? Um. Wow. Okay. Um, I started out as a 20th century historian, I thought, of France. Um, and I was looking at a, a young Black American named Josephine Baker. And in the course of starting to do my research on Josephine Baker, I realized that she was not sort of the first Black woman to captivate France. And so I started looking backward to see if there were other women. And as a result of that, I came across Sarah Bartman. I mean, started everything. She's the one that actually she, she caught on my heartstrings. And I thought, I think we're going to concentrate on her predominantly. I mean, the other women in the book are, are also amazing in themselves, but I think Sarah, she's the one for me that, we have to we have to tell her story. I really think- I, I, she has my heart. That's clear. Yeah. Okay. So, what do we actually know about her early life then? Well, uh, a book came out a number of years ago called Sarah Bartman and the Hottentot Venus: A Ghost Story and a Biography, and it was by Clifton Crace and Pamela Scully. And I think that's probably the best book out there on Sarah Bartman specifically. Um, and so as a result of their work, we know a lot more about her than we did before that book came out. Uh, we think, we think she was born in the 1780s in South Africa. She was enslaved there. And as a result of her owner, her owner actually 
gave her to his brother in hopes that she could be exhibited in Europe. So she is sort of spirited out of um, South Africa without permission of the government. You really needed to register that you were bringing someone out, especially someone who was um, in bondage. And so they, um, she's spirited out there and on board of a ship on the way to England. Um, her owner comes into contact with a, a surgeon on the ship and they decide that they can make a lot of money exhibiting her um, in London. Exhibit. I, I really hate that. Exhibiting her. I mean, yes. What do we know what she looked like? Um, you know, that's a great question. No, we don't. And one of the reasons why we don't know what she looks like is she looks different in every image that's created of her. She gets taller in some smaller in others. Um, her bottom gets bigger in some and smaller in others. Uh, her skin color changes. Um, her body changes dramatically. And I would actually argue um, one of the things that happens to Sarah um, after she dies is um, a naturalist gets permission to dissect her body. He also makes a plaster cast of her body. And that's the one that starts out the story in the preface about my my first encounter with the body cast. And I would actually argue as well, I don't think the body cast is accurate either. Uh, Georges Cuvier, who was the naturalist who got to dissect her, was very, very excited about that possibility. He was very angry when she was alive that she wouldn't let him look at her, her genitalia. And so I think... I think he manipulated the body cast to uh, to argue that black women had these really um, abnormally shaped bodies. And that's not to say Sarah Bartman had something that is, I'm going to mess up the, the word. It's stetichopagia. And what that is, is excessive fat pockets in the bottom. And so um, she did have a large bottom but we don't know what she looked like. Um, Grace and Scully, I think, say that she was about four feet, six inches tall. She was tiny. So it's anyone's guess what she really looked like. I'm just astounded she had a big bottom. So what? I mean, yes. And they thought exhibiting her as this sort of primitive representation of Africa would make them money. And they were correct. It would make them money. Um, You know, exhibitions in Europe are the precursors to, you know, circus, to circus freaks and things like that. So people, you know, you, um, Britain had what, John Merrick. Um, So the elephant, the so-called elephant man. So seeing people and seeing things that you hadn't seen before was really important. It was a form of entertainment for people. So um, as horrifying as that sounds. I was thinking exactly that when I was reading the book. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, wow, she she's literally in a circus. She's yes. on display. And yes. we're going to get to exactly what, what they did to her because that is, it's interesting, but it's incredibly cruel at the same time. So let's, let's mm-hmm. backtrack a little bit to, she now arrives in England. So yes. she's left South Africa. So arrived in England. Where does she go? Well, it appears that the brother of her master sells his interest in her to this 
ship surgeon. And so she is exhibited around um, London. She's at Piccadilly Circus and there's some other spots in, in London where she's being exhibited. Um, it's interesting. The, the documents are very quiet here, but there seems some suggestion that, that Dunlop, who was the ship's surgeon, may have had a relationship with her. I can't tell, actually. Um, so she's exhibited in London, and she comes to the notice of abolitionists there um, who believe that she's being exploited. And so they bring on her behalf a legal proceeding in November of 1810 to determine whether or not she is being held against her will. So my question is when they display her, mm-hmm. I know we're kind of, we're going off, off our questions here only because we're it's okay. really interesting ones as we're talking. What, what do they do to her when they, when they display her? Well, we only, we only have a couple of witnesses who wrote about it. Um, Mrs. Charles Matthews, who was the wife of a famous uh, British comedian, writes about her sitting, um, sitting down in a cage behind sort of a tarp. So you can see her outline. And it's really important with Sarah Bartman that you always see her outline. You know, she's being exploited because she is supposed to have this abnormal body. So it's really important that you always see her from the side. And if you look at images of her, they show her from the front, but they always also show her from the side. So um, Mrs. Matthews makes a, a note in her memoirs that people would come up to the cage and then she was supposed to um, come out from behind the screen and display herself. And so at one point um, her handler, whoever that was insisted that she come out from behind the screen and she wouldn't do it. And uh, Mrs. Matthews says that um, he threatened her to get her to come out. And so when she came out, he said, you know, she was quite sullen, which, you know, big surprise. Um, And so um, people could look at her. I believe you could pay a couple extra pennies and poke her. Um, it was sort of encouraged to poke at her body to convince you that it was real and not, not sort of a hoax. I, I, I had I'd muted myself on purpose because just the moment of, of people who didn't hear, I just made some of the worst sounding sounds. You, you, you could pay extra. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. That is, yeah. It is yeah, it's so, so primitive. It's awful. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly, and that was sort of the point of, I think, Mrs. Matthews's um, um, entry about this is that you've got women, you know, women who are supposed to be considered these delicate sort of flowers um, are, you know, poking her with their parasol and, and um, she makes a note of sort of who is the real primitive here you know, the, the white British people that are poking at her or Sarah Bartman. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition between sort of civilization and savagery. Okay, so um, then the, the legal proceedings, you mentioned those, how do they go? Um, I find the, the court proceedings really interesting to read. So these three abolitionists, Uh, bring this legal proceeding to determine whether she is being held against her will. The abolitionists claim that she's being exploited. Uh, Of course, 
uh, Macaulay uh, or Dunlop, the surgeon is saying, you know, she's doing this voluntarily. And so it's a very, they're a very interesting series of documents. One, because they say things like, she said she is happy. She says she has everything she needs. Uh, There's no point in any of the documents where they say, we sat and examined, you know, Sarah Bartman for four hours. There, at no point does it say anything like, I am here on my own volition. I am happy here. It's always she said. And it's interesting because her handler was a couple of inches away from her during the interrogation. So it's not like she could say, you know, for the love of God, help me. I'm being held against my will um, because her, her owner was sitting there. It also says in the document that she doesn't speak much, that she only speaks mostly Dutch. And so it doesn't say anything about an interpreter. Uh, It doesn't say anything about whether she actually understood what was happening to her. And since there's no I in any of the documents, it's really hard to tell. But as a result of that court case, I think a couple of things happen in she's baptized. And I think that might have been a way of sort of saying she's a good Christian. Um, So she's baptized also in 1810 in Manchester. And the other thing is that after the court case, she sort of disappears for a while. And we think she traveled throughout Europe during that time. She may have been in Ireland, but she sort of disappears until she pops up again in, in Paris. I mean, I'm wrap, trying to wrap my head around how we're talking about what the the, the 18th century at this point um, and 19th, 19th century. Sorry, I, I'm losing. My, I'm a 20th century historian. I don't understand. That's okay. I always think 18 and then have to go up one to 19. It's quite shameful. So we're talking about the 19th century here, where um, people, obviously, people who say they're not primitive, they're incredibly primitive. Um, that he's she's sitting next to her, her handler. Mm-hmm. she can't be vocally free she's right. doesn't even speak english that we know of no what is happening i, I yeah like i said I, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around how this is even well for all i know he was interpreting for her exactly. you know, who knows what she said and that's sort of the point of the court documents is that her voice is uh relatively silent you know, her own voice is completely silent. But what you have is sort of an interpretation from someone of what she says her life is. Her only complaint, and it says this, it says her only complaint is that she doesn't um, have enough warm clothes. That Really? That's her only yeah. complaint? Yeah, that's what I said the first time I read it. I was like, are you kidding me right now? Um, and I think that's what's so maddening about... Um, history is that we have to rely upon the documents that we find at the same time you know you just want to tear them up and and run screaming into the night and that's one of those documents that you just shake your hand and go are you fucking kidding me right now she just the only complaint she has right now is that she's she's cold um i think one of my top complaints would be some primitive asshole is poking me with their umbrella i mean yes on and it doesn't get better when she goes to France either. So it, it, it must have been um, a really precarious life. She's ripped from her home. She never returns there. During the court case, 
is the first time you hear that there was a so-called contract between her and her handlers. Um, and that contract supposedly said she was there on her own free will. She knew she was going to be exhibited. She was to be paid a certain amount of money. And then she was to be repatriated back to South Africa. And none of those things seem to, to have happened. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what actually happens to home France? Um, it's Paris. interesting. Uh, it's in, it's interesting in France. It's different from England in that there's no court case. Uh, there is moral outrage, but it is of a much different kind. She's sort of fully a um, an ex, ex exhibit by the time she gets to France. She's billed as the hot and top Venus. Uh, she's sold to an animal trainer, and he brings her to Paris. Sorry, and what? So, yeah, well, a lot of things happen to her in Paris. Uh, you know, she comes to the attention of Georges Cuvier, the naturalist. He has her painted for a couple of days. Um, he also has her examined in his auditorium at the Museum of Natural History. Uh, he, you know, there are... are stories and I, you know, I'm doing the quote marks, which of course you can't see, but there are stories about her also being exhibited privately in Paris at the same time. So if you had enough money, you could, you could see her privately. So it's interesting to me because she doesn't live very long. She's very popular in the sort of historical moment she's in, but she doesn't live very long, but she packs a big punch there and, you know, her exploitation, which is horrific when she's alive is equally horrific after she dies. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't end up living long either. If people are poking me with sticks, exploiting me, examining me, I just, I can't imagine the psychological damage this poor woman is going through. Exactly. And then there's, you know, the physical damage, you know, we think she died of, tuberculosis. So she was ill for a long time. Um, alcohol definitely played a part in her life. She was abusing alcohol by the end of her life, not surprisingly, um, both for the psychological trauma and also for self-medication. I think she might've had breast cancer. And so she was in a great deal of pain as well. And I think she was medicating that with alcohol. So she was ill. She's very ill at the end of her life. I, I love that, that an, an ill woman also being exploited at the same time. She's in pain. Oh, let's, let's just cause us some more pain. Why don't we? 
Yeah, and it's interesting because Cuvier writes in his journals, which were awful to read, uh, I absolutely loathe that man, um, wrote about, well, uh, that she wore an apron, a covering over her genitalia. And he would say, I kept trying to look under there and she wouldn't let me. And um, I offered a candy and that didn't work. And I thought, wow. So the, just the, the torment and the trauma must have been excruciating. Like I can't even, I can't even think about it. Can I get this right? He offered her a candy to look under the apron to look at her genitalia. Yes, because after she dies, he gets permission to do her autopsy and he's almost gleeful. He says, you know, we finally get a chance to look at her. They call it the hot and tot apron. Um, Some Khoisan women would elongate their labia. And so that's what he wanted to see. And so he says, you know, I finally got a chance to look under her apron um, when she died. Um, Like he, he just can't wait. He's a horrible man. What, what else happens to her body after she dies? Um, he dissects her. Uh, he removes her genitalia and he puts it on a board. Uh, he'll use that. I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, he takes her brain and puts it in a jar. Um, and he keeps her skeleton. He also kept her baptismal certificate and the images that were painted of her. And so the her genitalia gets presented to the French Academy by Cuvier, who basically argues that he now understands Black female sexuality. Um, he can now explain um, the hypersexuality of the Black female because apparently the size of her labia um, suggested that she was hypersexual. Um, and he shows that to people all over, you know, scientists from all over the world I think it's one of the ways that the notion of the hypersexual black woman comes into being is that he's showing this to so-called scientists that are taking it as um, truth and then repeating it. It's, a t- it's terrible. And then he makes a plaster cast of her. And so one of the things I'm coming back to something I said earlier is that he could have done anything with her body when, he, when she died, he could have added something here, taken away something here so he could have done anything. So I always knew that I wanted to see the cast and I was really glad that I did because I think it was probably the last thing that her body touched, but for no, mo- for no moment at all, do I think that it's accurate. Please tell me he gets his comeuppance in life. He does not. Um, he's, he's nicely buried in the family plot in Paris. So, Oh, Good for him. That sounds, yeah. by the way, that's incredibly sarcastic. If nobody- And has, and has, you know, there's streets in Paris next to the Museum of Natural History named after him. He's very famous. Um, I went to his grave and talked to him for a moment when I was in Paris, just to let him know that what he did to Sarah Bartman, that she, she was able to survive that. And the fact that we still talk about her and that we don't really talk about him suggests that, sh- that she outlived him. And I, I love that. Well, hopefully we'll do her justice in this podcast because I just... Cause She's it, a remarkable woman. She is. For being able to, to survive all of that is, is just incredible in itself. That it's, and that's exactly it. She survived that. She survived not only enslavement in her native 
um, and her native place of birth, um, most likely the death of um, a husband or um, or a family is, you know, brought to the middle of nowhere and treated like, a, you know, an animal and she survived. I mean, it doesn't, this carries on pretty much her exploitment just just uh, even she, though she's now dead, she's still being exploited in Paris, isn't she? Yes, and it, it continued into the to the twentieth century. Actually, they had her body cast and her skeleton on display, and and then for a while there, South Africa started asking in the late nineties, I think, for repatriation of her body. Uh, I think the French claimed that they had misplaced part of her, and then they find her, they find all her parts um, and her genitalia, her brain and her skeleton were repatriated to South Africa. But even in the seventies, when she was on display, um, people were making obscene gestures with her body. Sorry. She was on display till this, till this in the seventies. Yes. People in the seventies who Okay, I'd like to say they at least have a bit of a moral compass in the, in the 1970s after living what happens in the 20th century, and they are yeah. still exploiting her body in the 1970s. Yes, and it's interesting because the South Africans did not want her body cast um, for any number of reasons I could suggest to you, but they left her body cast, the, the pictures, the paintings that had been done of her, and they left her baptismal certificate. And I believe the only part of that that I wish that had gone with her was her baptismal certificate because she carried it with her throughout her life. And so it had some kind of meaning for her, but they didn't want it. And so they took it all back. So uh, the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Man in Paris, has her body cast, the paintings, the autopsy report, um, and the body cast. So there have been talk over the last decade or so about them putting her back on display. I have rigorous, rigorously um, told them how I feel about that. Well, listen, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, that if you started a petition to force them not for that to happen, to basically bar them from doing this, I'm sure we would help you promote that because that's just, that's just disgusting. She should never be back on display. Um, there was a curator there, Philippe Menossier, who took such good care of her, um, who kept her from being um, exploited by writers. And it was, he made it very, very difficult to actually look at the body cast. Um, I was really grateful to him that he let me see it. Uh, but he protected her really, really well. And he has since retired. So I watch very carefully <laughs> to see if there's any kind of news about her being put back on display. So apart from her body, I mean, still being exploited because hopefully not. Um, what other ways was she exploited um, after her death? She shows up in a lot of visual representations sort of what I talked about earlier. She never looks the same in any of them. Um, I've seen pictures of her popping up in works that have nothing to do with her as late as the 1870s, 1880s. And she's, she's dead by 
either December 31st, 1815 or December 1st, 1816. So people seem to have a memory of her um, or at least parts of her. There are different sort of uh, comical characters where her bottom shows up, um, not even her face, just, just her bottom. Um, and so there are lots of moments where she pops up. Probably the most famous uh, place where at least a representation of her pops up is a play that comes out called, um, in 18, 1815, 1814. Goodness, I'm a terrible historian. Called The Venus Hot and Tot or Hatred of French Women. Which doesn't that just say everything? <laughs> It's either the if you hate French women, then you want the the Venus hot and tot. So she she doesn't appear. Only an image of her appears, and only this notion that uh, white French men and women know the black body so much that they can sort of uh, replicate it. So the the plot of it's a vaudeville play. The, the 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 plot is basically there's a young man named Alfred who has been married and divorced twice from white French women. He's been deceived both times. And so he tells his uncle, who's a baron, that he wants to marry the antithesis of a French girl. And for him, his uncle says, well, the antithesis of a French woman is this hot and top Venus who's currently in, in Paris and taking the world by storm. And so his cousin, uh, Amelia, hears this and, and basically claims that um, Alfred clearly has no um, nationalist spirit because he would think of marrying someone who's not French. And so she dresses up as the so-called hot and top Venus to entice him. And so he falls madly in love with her and, you know, the family comes out and says, this isn't really Sarah Bartman. And they show him a picture of her and he supposedly recoils in horror um, at how, how ugly she is. And he decides that he will, uh, marry his cousin. How ugly she is. Yes. And he says, of course, I could never marry a hot and top. Um, so it's an interesting juxtaposition of several things for me. One, the way race plays out um, and not just how race plays out, but how gender plays out. So we've got this white noble woman that the audience always knows is white and noble pretending to be this black woman. We have Alfred, who has been deceived twice by French women, so he's not really a man, um, get deceived again by another French woman. But in what he comes to understand is she's actually saving him from blackness. And so he gets a wife who is, can be a hot and tot, you know, privately, but can also be a noble white French woman publicly. Do I want to know how they dressed up the actress to play her do I really want to know you know I don't know I studied a number of other women in the book including a young Senegalese girl named Urika who was purchased as a house pet uh, for the for a French noble family and she is also the subject of a number of plays the difference between uh, Urika and Bartman the plays is that the white French actresses who attempt blackface are almost exclusively sort of scorned. Uh, one critic says by blackening their face, they're taking away what is most beautiful about them. So I don't know if 
Amelia colors her face. I think I, given the press that the the play has, I think I would have found something that says she tried, she attempted blackface, um, but I didn't see anything like that. So why is Sarah Bartman, why is her case so, so unique? Well, that's a hard question because my book argues that she's not as unique as we would like her to be. Um, you know, the idea of having these black women sort of exploited by the French is a little hard to take, but she has a great deal of staying power. One, I think she is, there was so, she was considered so exotic um, and primitive and savage and sexual all at the same time that I believe it helped the French mitigate other anxieties that they that were happening to them in France at the same time. I think she was a response in many ways to France's loss of Haiti in the Haitian revolution, that it was a way of sort of being superior to another black body. And so there weren't that many black people in France proper. And so I think she's unique in that many people hadn't seen her that they could see her in a way that elevated their own self-worth. Um, it's, it's not hard to feel superior over something in a cage. And I think she also helped talk about uh, the kinds of gender issues that come up in this play, for example, and, you know, of white French women behaving badly in a way that was, that they thought was safer for them. Can you remind our listeners before we finish, what is the name of your book and where can they get it from? The name of the book is Venus Noir, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. And it was published with the University of Georgia Press. It is available. in I believe you have to order it in local bookstores, but you can get it online and you can get it directly from the press. Fantastic. Robin, thank you so much for telling us more about Sarah Bartman. And there's so many more interesting women in your book. But like I said earlier, she is the one with that with that opening um, opening statement in your book. I just I couldn't I couldn't let her go. And I think she deserved a prime spot on our podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I will say finally that it's always exciting for me when people get to know the women in this book. And so I'm always delighted when they also fall in love with them. So thank you for letting me talk about Join us on Monday when we will be talking all about Denmark and the Atlantic Wall and archaeology with Camilla Damlin. So don't miss out on that. It's really interesting. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.
We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.